Hello everybody, this is Clint Locklear with Trapping Radio and I'm at the NTA in Escanaba, Michigan with Tom Miranda and we're gonna we're gonna spend a little time together talking about uh, kind of his career from going from deciding to be a trapper up till today. First Tom, I've got to tell you about 28 years ago I was furious with you. I'll tell you a little story. Um, there was a young man named Clint, which is my name, and I didn't, didn't grow up trapping, so I'm in Alaska. I get cabin fever, and I go down to the rental store because I'm bored. And up in Fairbanks, it was 80% hunting, fishing, and trapping, 20% movies. And a good friend of mine by the name of Dennis Murphy, which is here, was an officer of mine when I was up there, and he just started trapping, so he was all fired up like all new trappers are. He didn't know anything about it. So I go in the video store, and there was two videos I got, I ended, they had three trapping videos. One was Mike Lipimski mountain trapping, which was Martin, which was cool because I was in Alaska. You had one of yours with fur fishing game where you're trapping in the snow, and this is where our issue comes up. And then uh, Bob Jamerson on his Red Fox. So I watched the, uh, the Mike Lipimski one, the first trap I ever said had a male Martin, I was hooked. So then I go back and I watch all of the fur fishing game because they had them rental, which I don't even know if that was legal, but they had them for rental up there. And you were showing a snow set. And I think you were in South Dakota. So you're you're on a field and you have your broom and you broom out. Do you know the set I'm talking about? I know exactly the set. You, you, you broom it out and you put your, you chop in your dirt hole with your ax. Now I'm brand new at trapping at that time. So I'm like, that guy seems to know what he's talking about. So I go out with my broom and my axe and my brand new Victor number twos from the, the commissary there, shiny as could be, and I don't know what lure I was using. I'm in Fairbanks, Alaska. I start brooming. Snow's seven foot deep. I keep brooming. So I finally get pissed off and I go get the snow shovel. So I'm in this hole. I get down to bare ground and I chop in it, I do your set just like you do. Then I realize because I threw all the snow outside the hole, it's 12 foot high. So I've got to literally swim out of the snow to get back up. The only set I put in all day, it took like four hours. <laughs> the wind blew, it was level the next day. <laughs> so I had to, and I'm like, that guy did not talk about this <laughs> at all. That was my first experience with trying to canine trap up there, and I tried. It was it was off that video, and then, and I thought about that since then. But being new, I mean, hell, you don't know. I just your snow was like that deep. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and in Dakota's the wind blows everything off. You look for a bare spot, you know, where the wind's blowing everything off. Mm -hmm. Try to set there. So, well, that's. That was my first experience with with Tom Miranda many many years ago. Since then, I've I've uh, I've trapped a little bit. So, uh, what I'd like to do with you instead of talking about how to catch stuff is uh, how did you get, or what was your mindset? How did you think, or or was it a lot of it timing uh, when you started? Like how did how did you personally get into trapping? Was it a family thing? No, my next door neighbor trapped. Uh, he was okay. older than I was. Uh, he was in high school and I was a lot younger, five, six years younger. And I would see him walking down the railroad tracks near our house uh, with a basket on his back. I was 11 years old, I didn't know what he was doing. And so I started following him as a little kid would. And um, after I'd watch him work along the creek bank, I'd sneak down there and, and see that he had set traps and I would snap him off. He finally caught me one day. Why were you doing that? I just was interested. I was just a little kid, you know. And uh, I ended up uh, ended up being the guy carrying his pack basket for him and learning how to trap. And uh, eventually, he found girls, and I got the trap line, and that's how I started. Did you did he just give you, you use his traps, or did you? Have well, I bought I bought some of my own, but I inherited some of his eventually. I mean, it didn't happen in one day, but you know, it was worked over the course of several years of him getting girlfriends and not being able to go check traps today you can go check them and you know you can set more and I bought my own traps and eventually moved on to college and he wasn't around there anymore so I was able to trap. So you started with probably muskrats, mink, coon? Yeah exactly exactly. And then where in your life did, did that start taking more of a serious approach? Well it took a serious approach pretty quick because Normally, I was I grew up in a um, lower middle class family, and I had to work in the summer. So I, 
I put clay pigeons on the trap machine as a trap boy and I mowed yards and I did a lot of odd jobs uh, that I could as a youngster to make extra money and of course when trapping season came around and of course that, at that time the fur prices were fairly decent so you know I could make more money catching three muskrats than I could mowing five different guys yards you know what I mean mm -hmm. so it was a lot more lucrative and it was a lot more fun and I and enjoyed being outside more and it made me an entrepreneur at a young age now I don't know if I can believe you on this because you're successful now so that means you had to start with a trust fund <laughs> and from rich family for that to happen yeah. so there's no way you worked yourself up to this <laughs> oh yeah that's the that's the beauty of trapping. It teaches uh, it teaches you a work ethic like no other oh, no other yes. occupation could. Because if you want if you want uh, an easier job than trapping, dig ditches. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Dig graves. That's what you know. Trapping's very difficult, and I learned it at a young age. And the other thing too that really helped me early on was that my parents were fairly lenient. I mean, they didn't hawk me over my homework all the time, or you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, because they give me time to skin at night. They let me go out at four o'clock in the morning and run my traps without, you know, along creek banks by myself, you know, when I was young, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. kids again. Yeah, you know, uh, where today I don't know if I would let my young kids do that. Well, I don't have young kids now, but I mean, if I did, I don't know that I would let them, but it's because mm -hmm. of all the crazy things that go on. But my parents were lenient enough and trusted me enough. It gave me that latitude, and I learned early on to respect and trust that, uh, what they gave me, you know, that, that latitude to be out there and do it. And and they saw the work ethic and they saw the value in it as well when that uh, really set a fire in me. Every day is like Christmas morning and you don't know what you're going to get. That's true, yes. Well, see, the thing about the work ethic, I, I'm a very, because we don't know each other, but I'm, I'm a very uh, entrepreneur-minded guy myself. I think what trapping, besides the work ethic, I think what kids need today is to see you produce or you don't make anything. And trapping's like the perfect tool for that. Because if you don't catch coon, no matter how hard you try, you can't sell it. Yeah. And that, that's where I think that the trapping is so... And, and plus it gets them out for a computer for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so when you... Uh, so this was during, like, grade school? Well, this or? is, uh, yeah, late, yeah, seventh and eighth grade, yeah. And yeah. you did this all the way through high school? All the way through high school. Did you, did you go to college? I went to college for one year. I was a baseball player, so um, I... Um, I did quite well in baseball. I pitched a no-hitter in, in uh, high school and got a tryout with Cincinnati Reds. And uh, I got a scholarship to uh, Baldwin Wallace University. I, um, I went to. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, so I went to school in Columbus. Um, but after the tryout for the Cincinnati, I decided that if I couldn't make a AAA or a, I couldn't make a, a Division One college school, then I wouldn't probably be able to make the majors. And so I didn't take my scholarship. I I did a walk-on uh, to Ohio State University for baseball, and um, I sent a letter letter out to them that I wanted to come, and they asked me what. Um, team I was playing for, which was American Legion at the time after high school, just before college started, and, I, and they sent a scout and I hit two home runs in that game, and so they, they gave me a letter of intent to walk on. There were 300 mm. walk-ons at Ohio State that year, and I made it down to the last cut. I got I didn't make it. I got cut um, before they went to spring baseball in Florida, and so there were like 26, 27 guys on the team, and they cut a couple extra guys, and I was one of them, so I was devastated. I thought that I was going to actually be a major league player and so that fall after I got cut I quit school and then rather than I guess that's the only reason I was going to school was to mm -hmm. play ball and and I decided that I was going to trap as I, I knew I knew trapping and I liked trapping and I, it was a, it was trapping season was coming on so that's what I did. Did you stay in Ohio or is that when you moved to Michigan? I stayed in Ohio um, that was in 77 you know and uh, in 1978 um, when I was younger, my parents would take us to Cedarville, Michigan, which is near the Mackinac Bridge, and we would go fishing as a, when I was real young. And um, actually, when I was 14, I sent off to the Yukon to try to get a trap line. Um, but uh, when they sent me back all the materials, they said that I need to be a Canadian citizen. And my mom found that pamphlet and said, yeah, I was never moving to Canada. No way, you weren't giving up your American citizenship. Mm -hmm. Forget that, kid. You know, that was out. Well, the Upper Peninsula was the next best thing, and since I wasn't in college, I decided that I was going to go to Michigan and see if I could buy some land and maybe trap in Michigan. That's what I did. Now, why did you pick? Why was your... I mean, I've, I've been a professional trapper for over two decades. If I was going to go somewhere to be a professional trapper, the UP wouldn't be it. 
as far as numbers and, and income and different species why did you pick it was something I was familiar with you know it was uh, it was the familiarity of coming up here to go fishing as a kid it was a, um, a lot of the Harding pleasure and profit books that I read I grew up in Columbus Ohio that's the home of for fishing game you know so um, actually um, Harding some Harding's relatives actually trapped near my trap line back mm. in the day so um, and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was talked about a lot in the old days and you know the, the Hudson Bay Company and the trapping and I, there's a history there so I didn't really scope it out from a sense of finding the best place to catch a lot of fur bearers I scoped it out more as a place where you know some original trappers actually trapped so that I could go up there and kind of test my metal you know build my own cabin and, and mm -hmm. run the traps in deep snow and icy conditions and, and all that so I think that was why I picked it See, we're all wusses now. We would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I've always wondered that if it was like a sprinkling of romanticism going in the deep, you know, the deep woods or, um, you know, like you were really into beaver. And, there, and if I remember right, there's a lot of fox up here at that time. And, the, and they were bringing the most money. I've always just wondered kind of what that mindset was to, to do it. I think it was the romanticism of it more than anything else. I mean, there was a limit on beaver in those days of 25 per license and one otter, so you mm. um, really couldn't make a living trapping those. And of course, I I paid cash for my cabin, built my cabin myself and things like that, so at the end of the day, um, didn't have a lot invested, so I didn't need to really make a lot of money. But I did eventually get married to my high school sweetheart, and then all of a sudden you end up figuring out that you need more money you need more, mm -hmm. more and eventually i ended up taking a government trapper job and moving to south dakota okay so how, how long were you up here three years in the upper peninsula three years mm -hmm. and how did you build your cabin without youtube <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, there's all different kinds of books i mean back in those days we had the mother earth news which shows a magazine mm -hmm. that talked a lot about self-sufficiency and survival and solar and wind power and all that type of stuff composting toilets all the different things that you could do so i had that knowledge and uh, there were a lot of survival books and things that i'd read and I, I and i had always wanted to do it as a kid you know and it was like i mean i girdled the trees uh in, in the winter one year and then the next year they died off and the bark started to loosen so then i you know it was a process it wasn't mm. something that i just one day started sawing trees down to make up build a cabin yeah. Well, just out of curiosity, how, how long did you have to chop wood in the summer to be able to stay alive in the winter? <laughs> well, you did spend a few weeks putting up firewood, you know, but in the, especially in the UP, there's a lot of, of cuts, and a lot of the loggers leave quite a bit of the maple and different trees down that you can that you can actually cut firewood on. And so, okay. you know, I had a trailer that I pulled behind my Jeep, and, you know, I would just take a chainsaw and park along the road and cut cut logs and fill a trailer full and I had a little wood shed that held 10 or 12 cords and what was the biggest uh, change or see my change in the right word uh, difference in realization between Ohio and, and the UP I mean what did what was there had to have been something that you were just like holy crap this is very very different and how do we get around this well I mean the only edge features that there really exist to the naked eye in the in the upper peninsula or in the woods areas are the roads whereas in the farm country you've got the crop edges the creek banks you've got so many different forms of travel lanes that you can visually see you mm -hmm. know in the in the woods you don't see anything like that you really got to start to look at the terrain and pretend there's no trees there to what would it look like you know where your gullies are and where your ridges are and how you determine where the animals are going and how they're necking themselves across beaver dams and different places like that so your set locations change a lot and of course if you're running a long trap line you can't run all your traps on the road because then half of them get stolen by the time you get to them you know so I used a lot of drags in those days too where I'd get on these log two tracks and then instead of setting the really best intersection I'd have to go down one road and mm -hmm. set somewhere else where it was kind of a secondary location but at least I knew I wouldn't get my trap and, and animal stolen. Were you using like log drags or metal drags? Metal grapples with long chain. And how do you find those once the if you get a bunch of snow? Well, I mean, if you get a bunch of snow, hopefully you've got something in it. If you don't, then I always would mark the trees nearby where the set was, so I'd always be able to find the set if it was never snapped. But you know, if you've got an animal in it, you can usually find it that way. If you know, if an animal pull, if an animal pulls away with it and then pulls out of the trap, then you'll never probably find it till spring if you're mm -hmm. a metal detector or something like that. But. <laughs> 
<laughs> you keep track pretty much. Uh, there's a reason is. I don't come up. I mean, I started in Alaska, but there's a reason I don't. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just fascinates me from being up there, guys that can produce in this type of climate yeah. over a long period of time. I mean, it, it's almost like it's like you're a sadistic person to do this <laughs> all winter long. I mean, that's what it, it's what it's because it's so much easier in other places. But. Well, I, I would I would trap early up in Michigan because it was a lot farther north and it was cooler and you could start trapping a little bit earlier. And then when it got to November, I would go back to Ohio and I'd trap my old trap line and just stay with my parents and run my old trap line. And I'd milk it for the, you know, from the very beginning of the season for, you know, through Thanksgiving, you know, or a little after Thanksgiving. And then uh, maybe even to Christmas and spend Christmas with my family and then come back up. And by then it's all snowed in in the UP and I'd have my snowmobile and I would blaze my trails and then start trapping through the ice for beaver and, and things like that. And a lot of guys never trapped through the ice, but I wanted to learn how to do it because mm -hmm. um, in the open water trapping, it's a lot better. But when I moved to South Dakota, everything changed. Oh, I bet. Yeah. And you, you went down to Louisiana from one of the videos, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. So what, what you were doing was starting north, going a little bit more south, you going back to Michigan because you had the deep snow, and then I'd say once you just that got out of control you end up going further south or Arizona Arizona trap bobcats yeah what, what made you pick one of those two or the, over the other I mean Arizona or Louisiana well if the cats were paying more and you had a good place to trap you would trap there and then when the rats were paying good you trap in Louisiana you catch way more there's a lot of um, land in Louisiana um, that's leased but there's also a lot of land that you can get get on that's owned by the big companies mm -hmm. you know yeah, I, m I remember the first time I went to Louisiana, I, it was when the otter were really, really high. And I went to the Walmart and I got my license and they handed me the trap regs and it was on my three by five card. <laughs> and I went and hunted down a game warden because I knew that wasn't right. And he goes, and he went through all these books. He said, yep, no tea, 24 hour check. That's it, go have fun. <laughs> and I was like, this is awesome. Sportsman's paradise. Yes, it really was, <laughs> it really was. So, so when you went to South Dakota, it, Pretty much because you just it needed more income because of family. Right, right. And then and I was building my resume. I learned early and and early on that if I was going to be the best at anything, and that's one of the things that I've always tried to hold dear is that you'd, you'd be the best at whatever you do. And so, and I taught all my kids this as they were growing up. You know, you've got to build your resume. And part of my resume was that cabin building. Part of my resume was that trapping in deep snow and trapping through the ice and trapping in the Upper Peninsula with no electric or water, or running water or anything. Um, when I moved to South Dakota to be a government trapper, that was part of my resume to actually have been a government trapper and trap coyotes that killed sheep. I got to be an aerial gunner at an early uh, time in that part of the job. And I had taken flight school in high school. We had what was called aviation science in high school where you could basically really? take ground school. Yeah, but I never flew because I couldn't afford it. But when I got flying in South Dakota, I started talking to the pilots that would fly me for shooting the coyotes and they would say, man, you can learn to fly, no problem, you should just buy a plane. So I had a really good season that year because we were allowed to trap on our own and I bought my plane with trapping money and I had a pilot teach me how to fly it and I started running my trap line with the airplane in South Dakota um, and that's when I started making the videos I made some of the first trapping videos that blows me away so you paid for a plane with trapping money I mean most people's hero stories of that time is I paid for a brand new pickup truck with my fur money and you bought a plane I bought a plane but I only paid six thousand dollars for the plane it was a 1940 Cessna uh, it was a 1947 Cessna 140 and uh, it was a tail dragger it was actually a mail plane and it mm. was uh, I bought it in Lemon South Dakota and had it ferried uh, to Wagner South Dakota I took my lessons there from a crop dusting guy and uh, once I soloed he let me fly from Chamberlain South Dakota to Wagner which was about a hundred and forty mile flight and I would fly back and forth for lessons until I got my license. And once I got my license, I started using it to scout. And I was still a government trapper at the time. I still worked for the state of South Dakota as a trapper. I had a 10 county area. But what I would do with the plane is I would scout for dens. I would look for, when, I, when a rancher would call me, I would get where he lived and I would fly his ranch and I would try to figure out if I could see if there were coyotes denning near his ranch or where. I would use the plane to help me with work. The Game and Fish didn't really like me doing that because of the liabilities, but they said they couldn't control what I did on my own time. And eventually, 
with my, I had a trap and lure business at that time as well, and I wrote a book on fox trapping in 85, and that's when I made my first video. I had the airplane in it. So, I mean, the, from I've got several buddies in the USDA, and I mean, they're like the Gestapo now <laughs> on keeping fur or, yeah. you know, like if, if you're a coyote trapper, yeah, you can go 14 states away and catch a muskrat, but don't you dare touch a coyote. Mm -hmm. So, how, how, did you have to take vacation, or did you have your eight-hour work day, then you would get to... It was a very unique situation because I went, um, you know, just to give you a little bit of a history is... Um, in 1980, I decided that I needed to learn more about trapping predators than I knew, and so I went to uh, South Dakota and took trapping lessons from a trapper named Odon Kaur. Mm -hmm. I took Great private trap. lesson lessons from him, and uh, after those lessons, um, I, which I learned a lot from, uh, he had mentioned the Trappers College. In 1981, I took the Trappers College, the Fur Takers of America Trappers College, and because of his lessons and my work ethic, I aced that class. And they invited me back as an assistant instructor the next year. And then after that, more as an instructor, a more resume builder, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I was an instructor for 10 years for the Trappers College. But, um, you know, just that connection, Odon Kaur had mentioned the fact about this. Um, job available. He's the one who told me that there was a job available in South Dakota for game and fish if I wanted to do it. But I already had a lure business and I already had trap and scent and whatnot. And so when I went out there and interviewed, I showed the guy my little folder. I didn't have a catalog. It was a little folder. And I said, look, I make this trap and scent. I've made it for several years. And um, I, I'm, if you won't let me continue to do this business, I don't want the job. But if you will, and he said, as long as you don't, as long as you do it on your own time, we don't have a problem with it, and so they let me. But when I made my, when I wrote my first book, they were a little upset with that. I know, but I never mentioned I was a government trapper in it, you know, because mm -hmm. I didn't use my credentials. But then, um, when I made the video, I pretty much quit after that. I quit the got job because I I sold a hundred thousand dollars worth of videos in two months because it was the second trapping video really that was ever made besides Craig O'Gorman's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it you, was the you time. Will, you will find this funny. I took instruction from him the first time 18 years ago, and he's still duplicating those videos the way he did in 1987. <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was a shock to see. I mean, he, he, he still humps it. Yeah, I, I, he, he told me what those videos did. Of course, now the video market is dead. Mm -hmm. Of course, everybody still wants to make them, and no one wants to listen to you. That you're better putting it off on YouTube or something. But yeah. But. Well, the amazing thing about this show for me—I haven't been to a trapping convention in 25 years—is that we have a number of people that's come up to me that said they learned how to trap from those videos. I mean, mm -hmm. literally. And these guys are 40 years old, you know, or older. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's pretty—it's been pretty um, eye-opening to me, and really, um, really. It meant a lot to me that these guys are coming up to me that actually bought the videos back in the days, and these guys are coming up with a heartfelt thanks that they I got them into trapping. I they learned how to trap from watching those tapes or reading those books, and and to see what I've done to to get onto ESPN and be on TV mm -hmm. and bow hunt and travel the world hunting and all that. You know, a lot of people think I gave up on trapping, but I really didn't. I had to make a choice to whether I was going to be a trapper um, or I was going to be successful in another part of my resume. And that's where I went. I was very, very successful trapper when I got out of it. But when I got on ESPN, everybody wanted my spot. There was only eight outdoor shows on ESPN. They had four hours, and it was eight, eight half-hour shows. And most of them were fishing, only a couple mm -hmm. of hunting shows, and I was one of them. And ESPN took my show because of the authenticity, because I wasn't a sports celebrity that was just hunting. I was an actual trapper, an actual bow hunter, somebody who had brought the authenticity to it. And so the resume of that for me was that I had to learn how to edit a show, I had to learn how to talk on camera, I had to learn how to write a script. Oh, you had to do all of that? Well, I was a trapper. I didn't want anybody else to do it for me. I mm. wanted to do it. And even ESPN didn't know. I edited my own shows airing on ESPN at my house, and they didn't know. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but it kept me with low overhead, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people think I always got free hunts, you know. You're always hunting for free, you're a rich hunter, you travel the world. But I worked for all of it, you know, because I had my overhead was low. You know, my, and my sponsors, I've had Realtree as a sponsor since 1989. You know from your podcast what it takes to get a sponsor and what it mm -hmm. takes to keep a sponsor. To have the same camouflage company from 1989 till 2018, 
Is that when you first did the ESPN was 89? Well, I, I, did, I did a show before I got on ESPN. ESPN actually saw the show on another network and contacted me because I was doing an, basically I did an adventure show when I first got on. What do you mean to see, I, I don't really watch outdoor stuff like that, so when you say adventure show, what, what do you? Well, originally my show was called Outdoor Adventure Magazine and I did fishing, hunting, and adventure every week and the adventures is what ESPN wanted. Because I was a pilot, I did a lot of flying shows. I flew P-51 Mustang, B-29 Bomber. I, I got my float plane rating on TV. I did a lot of flying stuff. And then I also did rock climbing. I climbed Devil's Tower Monument um, for a TV show. I rode a bull. I got lessons from Ty Murray, world champion bull rider, and I rode a bull. I walked on fire. Um, I became a SWAT team member. I did Navy SEAL training. I did, flew a, a 14 me. Tomcat jet. No, I did all these adventures. And the whole point of it was is I wanted people to learn about hunting and trapping and learn that hunters and trappers weren't killers. And the only way I could figure to do that was to do these adventures so I could get women to watch, so I could get other people that didn't hunt or fish to watch the show, and they would watch the crazy adventure, and then maybe they would stick around long enough to see me bow hunt a deer. And so that was the whole premise behind it. And so that's how the show, and the show was number one rated on ESPN for six years um, in, the, in its time slot. So... Well, I guess so. If you're walking on fire and hanging out with seals, I mean, yeah, I just, I just thought that, um, like I said, I've never been into the the watching the outdoor stuff like that. I just thought you you went from, in my mind, I tell you what, I just from an observation from afar is the '87 crash, and then the timing, which is, is awesome if you can get it, was all that was starting with the outdoor TV because of the fishing and the hunting. You, you, as you say, you built up your resume, so you you did the right thing beforehand, and this opportunity of timing came up, and you could just you could slide over and do that. Yeah, I mean that, was, that definitely was part of it because timing in life is everything, you know. I mean, and you hit it right. I mean, when prices are really good, you don't catch that many. When prices are crappy, you catch a whole bunch, but you still don't make the same money. You know what I mean? Right. So at the end of the day, timing—it's all about timing, no doubt about that. But see, the reality was uh, when I—I I never really wanted to leave trapping um, because I st stood in line to wait to see Jimmy Houston at a sports show. And I wasn't looking for his autograph. I wanted to ask him how I could get a trapping show on ESPN. And he told me that there was no way that ESPN would ever do a trapping show. And I said, well, I, that's what I do. And he goes, do you do anything else? And I go, well, I love bow hunting. And he goes, there you go. He goes, bow hunting. He goes, go that route if you're going to do anything. Well, I couldn't get on ESPN, but I got on a network called Sports Channel America, and I was on there for two years. And it was the adventures that got me into ESPN. And then the adventures were done. I liked doing them, but they were done so that I could get more people to watch my show, so I could get my message out. That so you would do like some crazy thing like eating fire, and then the next one you would hunt. Exactly. And then you would just like switch off and on. Exactly. That was the premise of the show. I did a, I did a many Are those adventure. on YouTube? There's I want to see there. you walk on fire. <laughs> I want to see how that works. <laughs> yeah, no, I burned my feet, I can tell you that. Did you really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... So what are, you, what are you doing now? I mean, what are you, because well, I don't follow all that. So th this is like my tribe, my world, and this is what I do, so. Well, I mean, after after I, um, I mean, I was on ESPN for almost 20 years, and uh, they were bought by Disney, and Disney phased out the outdoor line. So there, there's no ESPN outdoors anymore, no ESPN outdoor shows anymore. I moved to NBC Sports Network and, and the Sportsman's Channel, and then NBC Sports started, limiting what you could show because of the some of the school shootings and some of the things that were happening in the news. They weren't really for the outdoors or for hunting or, or conservation. So I ended up on the Outdoor Channel. My show's on the Outdoor Channel now. It's called Territories Wild with Tom Miranda. The, the thing was is I decided to go more and more and more into the bow hunting because I um, I guess I realized after a while I, I loved the adventure part of it and so I always wanted to go somewhere and hunt. Uh, I go to a place I've never been and hunt an animal I've never seen and so I started doing that and I'd go this place and hunt a caribou and this place and hunt this and that and the other thing and after doing that for about 10 years on TV I had a lot of footage of a lot of different crazy hunts and and, and all with bow and arrow and I started to realize that I had almost half of the super slam of North American animals with a bow and I had all the kills on video mm -hmm. all the hunts the all the adventures of it and I knew that there was such a thing as a super slam because I had had Chuck Adams, who was the first guy to ever get a super slam with a bow, back in 1990. 
he had been on my show for a year doing tips and stuff. He was sponsored by a company that also sponsored me, and they wanted him to have some FaceTime on TV on ESPN, and he was on my show. Anyway, long story short, I decided that I was going to try to be the first guy to get all the kills on video uh, for the Super Slam. And I did it quietly at first because I didn't want anybody to beat me and I didn't know how many animals the other guys had who were doing TV shows and things like that because it was my job to film the hunts. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I kept going and going and going and uh, pretty soon I got to the point where I was going to finish. I mean, I was going to get them all. And then there were other people that were saying, how many do you got? The 29, it looks like you're getting close to the slam, you know, because I was hunting polar bear and other stuff like that. But finally, in uh, 2000, May of 2011, I shot a desert sheep to be the first guy to get all 29 kills on video. And I made a video called uh, um, Adventure Bow Hunter Super Slam. Where you put all that in one. All thing. of it's in one. I've sold over 25,000 copies of that DVD of the Super Slam. It's still the one and only of its kind. Um, so at first, it's the only video that has all the kills, well, all the arrow impacts, all the hunts for the 29. It's 320 minutes long, three discs. And I wrote a companion book to go with it. So there's a book that you can go through every chapter, and I kept really um, good records. So I have the distance of the shot, how far the animal ran, what my equipment was, what the weather was, how many days, how many trips it went, how much it cost to do the hunt. All those facts and everything are in the book. So it made for a great package, and it, st it started a lot of guys towards those goals of going after the Super Slam. The thing is, is I learned early in my career that you don't get anything for free. And a lot of TV producers back in the day would try to get a lot of free hunts. But what happens is the outfitter has to give you the hunt, and then you have to go make the show. But if you don't make a good shot, if you don't get one, then the outfitter's out, and you don't, and he doesn't get a show. Mm -hmm. So I learned early that you buy your hunts, and you go. And a lot of times I, I went without an outfitter, but most of the Super Slam were outfitted hunts because they were in places I'd never been. Mm -hmm. for, and I didn't had a limited amount of time because I had to make so many shows a year. So, you know, I paid for all my hunts, and so all my outfitters got free advertising. And so that's, that's the way to take and turn a negative into a positive, because if I go somewhere, even if I shoot an animal, if the outfitter is somebody I don't want to promote for whatever reason, if he gave me a free hunt, I'm, I have to promote him. But the, I want to be true to my audience, and it's mm -hmm. really important to be true to your audience. ESPN taught me early on that you want the audience to root for you. So you have to be the type of person that somebody likes and will want to root for you. So never talk down to your audience. Always learn. And in all the shows that I've produced with outfitters, the outfitters were always the pros. The outfitters were the professionals. They were the guys who knew, not me. They showed me the tracks. Even though I knew a lot from being a trapper and I could get it done, it was basically putting them in the spotlight mm -hmm. and that gave me a second position and it helped the audience like me better and in order to have a 30-year career on TV you have to have people like you and you have to have sponsors like you because we actually buy the airtime in television you would think that the network would pay us for our shows they don't we have to buy the airtime to put our shows on there and then we have to pay for it through the sponsorships I've sat through one of those meetings <laughs> I have sat through I was totally blown away friend of mine that's in the bow hunting industry had me talking to one of those channels and that's when that came up and that was like a sledgehammer <laughs> and I was like y'all are freaking nuts I'm not gonna pay you to go do all this work that doesn't make any sense yeah. you know it was just like new no, no, no. well people don't really understand the true dynamics of it all I mean airtime for my show 52 weeks a year on Sportsman Channel prime time is $450,000. So if I have to pay $450,000 to the network for airtime, you know, that's a lot of money, you know. Mm -hmm. So a lot, you know, a lot of guys and will look at That's just them. That's, that's just airtime. That's not the hunts, that's not paying me, that's not paying cameramen, that's not editing or music rights, closed captioning costs, all the things that go with it. It's a very expensive business to be in, you know. So you have to you have you have to really want to be in it because it is a lot of work and you really have to have the dynamics to be able to pull off the financials you know and a lot of guys will watch some of these shows and they go oh that guy's stuck up or that guy's he's all about himself or that um, but if no one's going to promote you but you you know I mean mm -hmm. you got, everybody has to promote themselves and I think it's the way you promote yourself that that turns some people off and I've been fortunate enough to be in a situation where People, people tend more people liked me than didn't like me. You know, it's good. Mm -hmm. Authenticity is important too. That's what I've got. I've got a little helper right now. He started working. Name's Travis. Everybody listen, know who he is. And started when he's fifteen. He sits and bottles that stink of mine. <laughs> Fifty-two weeks out of the year, 
and he's wanting to get into I've started playing around with some deer since and he's like gaga over deer hunting and that's what I've been trying to get him to really understand Travis people will like you for you but if you try to be somebody else it's not going to work and and, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that's finally fitting he's got a great personality but he watches people on TV and then you start mimicking other people and then something in your brain knows that's not right <laughs> you know because everything that I can remember about you it was always the same you know that's what it was or Craig was always the same and y'all are totally two different people you know but it was always authentic just on two different spectrums of you know one was super aggressive and and one was nice and helpful and y'all both had your thing but it was because y'all were who you were mm -hmm. yeah and and I and I see that now with people wanting to do um, you don't really know who people are now anymore because everybody's trying to do the same thing mm -hmm. and it gets confusing to the customer yeah, well, you have to be true to yourself. I did a seminar yesterday where I pass out these little compacts, and basically they're camo paint, face paint, and um, I pass them out to the kids in the audience, 12 or 15 of I them. I saw some kids with that on yeah. today, and I was like, well, I tell them it's magic. I tell them it's magic. It's magic face paint. It gives you good luck. And I said, when you put it on your face, you're going to see deer. You're going to have good luck with it. But I said it's not the most important part of the compact because the other part of the compact is the lid and inside the lid is a mirror and whenever anything's not right with your life look in the, that compact and look in that mirror because it's you have something to do with that mm -hmm. don't blame somebody else for your problems you gotta look at yourself first and I said this little magic compact is going to save you a lot of grief someday always look in the mirror first and if you can, you'll find that you can almost always blame yourself for something of why things are wrong and fix it yourself first before you blame somebody else. It's really good advice. Absolutely. So, but you, you kind of had this, where did this come from? Like my, my entrepreneurship came from my mom. We grew up very poor and she was a hustler. And I mean, she would dress up like clowns in South Georgia in August and sell snow cones. Uh, I figured out how to go sell bulbs and cut grass and all that. So we were all, she taught me how to hustle. Where did this come, this type of attitude, how did you get that? I think it's I think it's trapping. I honestly believe that it's trapping. I think originally when I started trapping as a kid and the entrepreneurship of I could actually do something myself and sell it and make money, I think that that was really the key to it. And, and I think you, you make your own luck. I mean, I think you people come to many different forks in the road in their life mm -hmm. and a lot of people are afraid to take that risk. Um, but you can't you can't steal second base unless you finally decide that you know as soon as that guy that pitcher kicks his knee that one way and you know he's not coming over to first you need to go and you need to run like hell to get there and dive into that base and you can steal second and you might end up be the guy who ends up scoring that winning run I mean and that, that all takes risk and I think risk is a huge huge thing when it comes to entrepreneurship because I mean it has to be calculated risk but at the same token, if you're afraid to change what you're doing, especially in today's today's rat race, I mean, you'll never get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's a constantly building your resume and constantly looking at how you can do things different and looking in the mirror and say, you know, okay, I've been doing this like this for this long, but it's not working. What can I do different? How can I change things up? And um, believing in yourself is important too. You know, having the confidence that believe in yourself and. I'm the type of person that I'd rather get screwed than screwed somebody, so maybe I'm a little bit more passive than maybe I would want to be, you know, in some instances. Uh, maybe I learned that from my mom, too, you know, it's just not, some things aren't worth fighting over at the end mm -hmm. of the day, but I know where my ethics are and I know where my my true true feelings lie, and, you know, and I know who I am, and I think that's real important because I can, I can walk away from a fight and know that I'll be around to fight another day, and I know that I can win maybe under a different strategy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I do uh, some of the other stuff that I do is I teach outdoorsmen how to build income streams. And what you what you just said a minute ago, loss aversion. If you talk to a psychiatrist about it, I'm amazed at how people they limit themselves of what they could do. I've met some really talented guys that can do some amazing things, but they're more worried about you know what if I don't get a paycheck in eight months and two weeks from now 
to do it and they'll let that just lock them up and and it's it's kind of a it blows my mind really you know because it seems to me like with you just from what you're saying you may have went to up you saw much your resume somewhere in there that switched where instead of tom randa being a guy on the other side of the table where, where the customers are you made that switch to be on the side that you're on now and then did that, that kind of change how you went about what you were doing or promoting yourself or see what i'm saying yeah well you have to um you know, I, I think I, I think I always wanted to. I always wanted to be the guy that was on the other side, but you don't know how to get there. And I mean, that, that that's the whole thing. I mean, you you can sit and stew. You can come up with a million different ideas. I can I can tell you a story. I was sealing blacktop one year before I moved to Michigan one summer um, after high school. And um, actually, I was working at U-Haul, and this guy was in there getting some welding done. And I was working in U-Haul welding and, and hammering and moving metal around and whatnot. And, this guy was starting a blacktop sealing business and he liked my work ethic and what I was doing and always busting chop and he had been in there for like a week and he said, he goes, man, would you well, could ever consider quitting this job and running my blacktop crew? And I said, I don't know jack about blacktop and he goes, well, I can teach you everything you need to know. Well, I took that job, quit U-Haul and started running his his team and uh, I make a lot of money and sealing blacktop, but it's hot work, it was hard work, mm -hmm. but I mean, I, I wanted to be the best at it I could be. But I would always talk to him about trapping, how I wanted to be a professional trapper, and that was what I was really going to do. And I told him that I was not going to be around forever because I was going to be a trapper and I was going to move to Michigan. And one day he and he had a PhD in this and a PhD in that and owned about 10 companies. And he said, I don't usually do this, but he goes, I'm going to invite you to my house. And he goes, I want you to bring all these magazines you talk about in this trap and stuff, and I want you to bring it to my house. And I want to, to look at it and I want to talk to you about your business. Because I didn't have a business then. Mm -hmm. I was just one, I was a wannabe, you know. So I go there for dinner and, you know, he had a really nice house and nice wife and kids and all that. Um, and he starts going through all this Trapper magazine and the Furfish game and he's and the trap Voice of the Trapper magazines and all the stuff that I had brought. And he goes, which one of these ads do you like the best? Which one of these lures do you use? Which one? He asked me all these questions and he goes, okay. After dinner, he goes, tell me about what you want to do. And I said, well... I have some some lure formulas that I've been playing with, and I said I'm not happy with the results yet, like some of the lures I'm using. But I want to come out with a lure line, and I want to call it Ohio Valley. And he goes, Ohio Valley. He goes, Why do you want to call it Ohio Valley? And I said, mm -hmm. Well, it's because I've lived in Ohio my whole life, and you know, and I was just thinking in a vacuum, you know. And mm -hmm. he says, He goes, Look at this, look at this lure, Hallbackers. Look at this lure, Carmens. Look at this lure, O'Gormans. He goes, They're not. Montana Valley, Pennsylvania Valley. It's their name. He says you got to you got to build up your name, and he goes you've got to have a resume. You don't know what this is for, but will you please say that again about the name <laughs> Travis? Listen to Tom. <laughs> Travis, <laughs> <laughs> he's my helper. He's a, me and a friend, Jeff Dunlap, where he he he's 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 come up with some stuff, and I'm like, what are you gonna call it? And it's you know it's like I'm not gonna say what it was, but it's something like you know. You know, blood trail. This, you know, how the young guys are. And I'm like, Travis, won't you use your name? And he's like, No, I don't want to use my name. That's not cool. Please say that again, Tom. Yeah, Travis, use your name, dude. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so he's like, Okay, this is what you need to do. And he like writes down with a pencil, you know, all these. He says, It's got to name it after yourself. He says, You've got to build a resume. He goes, So people know who you are. He goes, You got to learn to be a better public speaker. You've got to learn. To catch these animals, he goes. If there's places that you can go learn, you need to do that. You need to do. And he just made me a list. And he said, "You got a got an education ahead of you if you're going to really be one of these guys." But it was a recipe, you know. It was like baking a cake, you know. I wasn't a cook, but it was a recipe for me for being a trapper. And part of the videos that you know, when I started writing books and being doing the videos um, and being more well known. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to show other people how I did mm -hmm. it, so maybe That's they could exactly do exactly where I'm at. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's funny you say that because uh, when I started doing predator control, I met a gentleman in in the South, and you know, like you might meet him at the airport from his jet, one of those type people. And one day he's in there, and I'm doing work, and I'm giving him an invoice, and it's handwritten invoice, and and he starts asking me these questions that I've never thought about the business, and uh, he looks at me for the longest time, and he goes, "Hold on a second screams down the hall at his accountant and th this is a big firm he goes clint is now your your uh 
your uh, customer and you're not going to charge him like you charge us. We understand. And the guy went, yes, sir. And he goes, you're going to be up at the lodge tonight with how you think you're going to make a living at this. And we're going to, we're going to see if it's going to work. That was the longest night of my life because he <laughs> came about it from a business point of view. That's right. And uh, it was really cool that you're saying that, that that happened to you too. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, you come to a, you come to that realization one way or another. I mean, either by making it or not making it. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you don't make it, you don't have any money. You're living, you know, you're not living the life you need to live. You don't have health insurance. You don't have this. You don't have that. So you, you know, you either either figure it out or you don't you know and I mean the guys who figure it out are the ones that that want it the most in my opinion uh, it comes down to that true grit hard work and never ever ever giving up there's no way I went on 54 hunts it took me 13 years to kill the super slam on video to get all the kills I mean how many videos do you know that, that people worked on for 13 years to get done yeah, it took me 18 years to do the African slam to get the elephant, rhino, hippo, cape, buffalo, lion, leopard, and then all the planes came on bow with a bow on video. So 18 years to do that. So I mean, when you start talking about projects that take that long, you have to have the dedication like nobody else. And if with the bow and arrow, uh, you know, like trapping, I mean, you learn location because you got to step in a three-inch spot, and mm -hmm. otherwise you don't get them. You know, mm -hmm. um, bow hunting—if they don't come in range or they're, they're always out of your range eventually somebody will grab a gun and shoot it and they're not a bow hunter anymore they're a gun hunter you know in order to be a bow hunter you can never pick up a gun I've shot three big game animals with a rifle in my life and that was for a Cabela Sportsman's Quest show I used to host on ESPN and after the third one I told him I didn't want to hunt with a gun anymore and I ended up just hosting I didn't even do any more hunts on there because they had gun sponsors well you, you keep talking about the bow and I cringe the last time I touched a bow I was in the army and that was back in the day where if you didn't have an 80 or an 85 pound bow, you're an absolute wuss and a girly <laughs> man. And I was I was in a tree stand over a cinnamon brown bear and dislocated my shoulder. Because mm. I relaxed once I pulled back. Mm -hmm. I've never touched one of those. I shiver every time I see a bow <laughs> because of that experience. But you know what's interesting? Do you know Craig? O'Gorman? Personally? No. When the first time I went out there, I did the regular instruction. Uh, about three or four years later I went back out there and I told him I said I don't care if we sit on your front porch I knew he wouldn't do that but I, I'm like I want to know how I can be successful in this business I'll pay you double I don't care I just want to know and uh, he, he first said no and then uh, he said yes and went out there and basically what you said about your resume is exactly what he told me but in a more aggressive because it's Craig more aggressive way of going about it that was the way he saw to do it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because you need a resume that nobody else has. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the more, you know, you, you listen to some of these Navy SEAL guys, and you know, they not only skydive from sixty thousand feet and swim underwater for four minutes straight without oxygen, and you know, they just have a list of things that they've accomplished and done to make themselves, you know, sniper fire and sharpshooter, and you know hand-to-hand -hand and all the things that they can do they build a resume that there's nobody you know if if you're gonna pick somebody that's got to go in for Osama bin Laden that's Absolutely. the guy you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. and it's the same type of thing for business too I mean for me I wanted somebody to look at my resume and say wow I don't think I don't, there's nobody else that has that resume and I and I know for a fact sitting here with you no one has my resume. No one's accomplished in bow hunting what I've accomplished. And even in the trapping world, I haven't been in it for 25 years. And there's a lot of guys that have caught way more than me in animals. There's a lot of guys that are probably way more well-known than me. But as far as the number of guys that um, I taught how to trap, not very many people can even come close no. to that because of those videos back in the day. I mean, I literally sold them hundreds of thousands of those videos I mean over the whole of the years it's crazy that's impressive in the last, I mean it's the same videos that I made in 1985-86 Cabela's bought 3,000 a couple years ago 3,000 DVDs of those same videos and then they're that old mm -hmm. they're you know and they're not that good I mean I've gotten a lot better at the TV business um, since then do you cringe when you watch oh them I totally cringe <laughs> I can't even get through the map session <laughs> it's all good information but if you don't fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to kind of finish up, if if what would if someone wanted to be in the outdoor world that you're in, maybe not just trapping, what kind of resume when you say that to someone new? Because technology's changing, 
uh, there's so many shows and channels and, and all that going. W what advice would you have for somebody? You have to get around it, you know, and you have to set your sights. Um, you have to set your sights low. You don't eat a whole elephant, you eat one bite at a time. You don't catch a hundred fox, you catch one fox at a time. So you have to get around it. And that might even be just working for a fur buyer. That might be just working at a shop that sells traps or, or sells bows. You gotta get around it. And then you've got to learn from the people that have been around it longer than you. And you have to continue to educate yourself and go on some hunts. If you're wanting to get into the bow side of it or in hunting side of it, go on some hunts. You know, Watch as much of what other people are doing as you can and see what you like and what you don't like and, and try to learn from that and, and uh, absorb yourself in it. But most importantly, I think more than anything is the priorities. You know, So many people get lost in that goal and they don't take care of the priorities of their faith, they don't take care of the priorities of their family and so many guys I know have wanted to be a super slammer for example so bad that they would spend the money that should have went for a home on a hunt mm -hmm. to go on a hunt rather than and you have to have your priorities straight you know when you're young and you only have to worry about yourself it's a little bit different you know than when you may have a family and a wife and, and two small kids and you still want to go with your goals set your priorities up first and then every waking hour that you don't have priorities with that work on your goals my son for example is a fantastic guitar player and writes great music but he he doesn't feel like he's good enough, but I tell him, do it every day, practice every day, just to, even if it's for 15 minutes, mm -hmm. because you're way better than you think you are. And it's an industry that's very, very difficult to get into, and I don't even think really he wants to get into it, but he's somebody that's talented enough to he could be in it, I think, if he really, really wanted to be in it. And I think there's a lot of people like that that really are talented, but they don't see the forest because all the trees are in the room, mm -hmm. you know? But have your priorities first to make sure that you take care of what you're supposed to take care of because that's what a man does. A man takes care of his, his what he's responsible for. And then after that, he works for his like dreams. Adam, I have to give you a hug. It's going to get really uncomfortable in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be my advice. Well, I appreciate you doing this, Tom. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome.